Now, higher side chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and while they say all we need is love, what about wonder? Because nothing drains what should be the fun out of life like our standardized, corporatized, archon induced consensus reality and the bland, boring eight hour energy suck schedule that starts at six and ends at 60 if you're lucky. A lifetime of fluorescent lights, Pavlovian training, uninspired offices, gridlock traffic, customer service, HR meetings, and a rinse and repeat routine of lifeless living, where our atrophied imagination is replaced with corporate offerings of screen-based moving pictures and a plastic and plush merch strategy there to fill our ever-growing void. But despite the sad state of things, if you can snap people out of their stupor, build a little rapport, and find yourself being bold enough to wander off the bland social etiquette script, with a little creative conversation, you might discover that nearly everyone has had a few curious experiences that prove reality is not designed to be so bland. Telephone telepathy, near-death experiences, childhoods and haunted houses, sightings of strange lights in the sky, visitations in the night, creatures in the woods, little green men in the field, impromptu astral travel, meaningful synchronicity, spontaneous healing, psychedelic breakthroughs, and the very mystery they work so hard to snuff out. The shame campaign has been so effective that people often doubt their own experiences, but if you simply ask the plumbers, electricians, sandwich artists, and Walmart greeters you meet, you quickly find it all right there just waiting to be acknowledged again. And to fuel the fire of this great remembering and re-enchant the world, today we're going over our picks for the top 10 paranormal books of all time with avid reader and international man of magic, the great Gordon White of Rune Soup, who stands alone in a category of returning guests with enough appearances here that I've just lost count. Riding his magic carpet to the promised land, the certified shamanic healer, Lenormand deck card dealer, and paranormal onion peeler, Gordon, my man, welcome back. Thank you so much. You know, given the time constraints on the free hour to get through these books, I half expected you to just say, it's Gordon, you know who he is, on to the first book. <laughs> yeah, I could have saved myself a lot of effort too, but I guess I'm stuck in my ways. No, but it's good to tee up, right? Because this is the parallel or sister episode to the one we did at the end of last year on my podcast about UFO books. And one of the things we started with, which I will obviously get to, is what is your goal? What are you seeking to achieve with your 10 books? And mine is definitely, you know, make the universe more magic again, right? Of course, I would say my goal is similar. Remind people of how weird reality really can be with books that are the most convincing. And yes, this is a companion show to the one we did on Rune Soup, where we went over the top 10 conspiracy books of all time. Well, that's what it was. And that's one of the things, is that these words sound easy to define, but you can start trying to put books on the list, and it isn't so easy. I actually found paranormal to be an even harder umbrella to put things under, because it can mean a lot of different things. And then you have books like Missing 411. Is it a conspiracy because the park rangers are keeping it quiet, just how many people go missing in these parks? Or is it paranormal because the cause is typically thought to be paranormal? 
Well, when you get into it, there's a lot of great books that blur the line and might even fall through the cracks because of it. But yeah, we are trying to make this episode sound complete for everyone. So that means talking about 20 books in 60 minutes, which doesn't leave a lot of time for elaboration, but this isn't our first rodeo either. Now we can zip through. It's funny you mentioned missing 411 because in my head, I'm thinking, what direction is Greg going to take his book countdown? And I said to myself, I'm like, it's going to be cryptid heavy or <laughs> cryptids are going to show up there. And so then I can leave that aside. So as we go through my list and there aren't all that many monsters, that's why I'm, I'm expecting you to do the heavy lifting in that kind of category of the paranormal. But don't spoil it for people. Let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I expect yours to be more sigh heavy and time will tell. Yeah, nice. Like you did. We should start with a few words about criteria and the process, because I do think that's a, a nice way to wade into these waters. And I know there are books that I purposely left out because they made an appearance last time. Uh, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. That's another one that it made your conspiracy list. It's a book about paranormal study by a government. So if it's government or state related, I guess... That would be conspiracy, and it's just another one of those that blurs the line. But what about you? What was your process? How did you go about it? So years ago, even before I started the podcast, when RuneSoup was only a blog, I had this phrase or this thought experiment, which was imagine you're at a barbecue with someone who is cynical about the paranormal or spiritual or, or spirit-based nature of reality, and you could give that person a list of books to read that could essentially science themselves into a world where they understand, oh, wow, so life continues after death in some form. And there's something like UFOs or angels or spirits or fairies or whatever in the world. So I would keep a running tally of books that, whilst I may disagree with, or depart is a better word, from their base cosmology which is much more science heavy, they were nevertheless useful in showing empirical data that points in the direction of the existence of things like telepathy and the very distinct, in fact, highly likely, I mean, we know it's true, possibility that life continues after death. So I went in that direction with my paranormal books. I went in a, can we science people into a paranormal cosmology? And that's where you were quite right. Mine's very sci heavy. That's for sure. And as usual, I also figured it's worth trying to hit at least a few of the classics consequently in that world, kind of like what I did with the conspiracy books. What about you? Yes, I'm right there with you. A lot of it is, well, this one's on the list because it is a classic. It'd be a weird list without it. Then there's the ones that make the best case for something larger than the material world. And then there's just a few that I think help clarify some of the models for a paranormal world, you know, a spirit world. I'm trying not to use a term like spirit world because I kept magic out of it. If there's ones that blur that line, I also tried to keep them to the side and be like, well, paranormal is a little different. They're adjacent terms, but I didn't want to put like Dean Radin's book in there or even Lynn McTaggart's book in there because I feel like that's a little bit off to the side. I don't know, but that's, you know, the nature of making a list is you want to justify why some things aren't on it because you have to whittle it down so the more narrow the term of the definition you can make the less you have to apologize in the comments afterwards i guess 
I think people, they were pretty forgiving last time because we explained our working. A lot of people, well, some people had their favorite conspiracy books that didn't make it to the list. And it's not like there's only 10 in the world or 20. It's the same here with the paranormal books. We've made a case. It doesn't mean that these are the best books or that they're the only books you should read. But it is, I think, a definitive. You read these 20 books or however many, figuring there'll be a couple of overlaps. And I think you've got a, a very good start to forming your own opinions about what is the paranormal. Yes, I would agree with that. And this time, another thing that was different for me is I didn't have my books. They are all packed in boxes. So that kind of hurt because it definitely was nice to flip open a book and at least refamiliarize myself with the table of contents, peruse it a little bit and be like, yes, this does belong here or no, maybe it doesn't. You know, memory is a funny thing. Sometimes a book is impactful at the right time and place and you go back and you're like, this is mediocre at best, but <laughs> that's just part of life. It's funny you mention that because without spoiling what my number one book is, I'm looking at my paranormal shelf going, where the F are you? I found all the others and it was fun to do exactly that, open them up and going, oh, oh yeah. And I couldn't find number one. And it, that seemed like just an expected thing to happen when you're talking about the paranormal. If you have a magical library, most people listening to this will understand books go missing and then they'll show up somewhere that's a bit eerie. And I couldn't find this damn book. And then <laughs> like going back in my memory, I'm like, oh yeah, that came out during that brief and idiotic time when I thought Kindle was the future. And I just started buying a bunch of Kindle books. So I had to fire that up and go, yep, there it is. So <laughs> I, I know when we did the last one, a lot of people said, yeah, thanks for that. Now I've just spent $150 on new books. This has at least reminded me to buy <laughs> one more physical book so far, at least. Yeah, I'm the same way. I like those physical books until I have to move them across the country. But let's dive into this thing. We're getting wordy already. So obviously, we don't have the nice slides that you made to go with your fancy video version. But let's kick it off with number 10. What do you got? I have Dr. Raymond Moody's Life After Life. Ah, Interesting, interesting. And my thinking behind that, right, for people who don't know, although I can't imagine anyone listening to this wouldn't, he invented the term near-death experience. So he's the font of the late 20th century's research into all of that kind of stuff, after-death communication, near-death experience in its late 20th century form. In the 19th century, spiritualists and others were looking at after-death communication, obviously. But that is an example of a classic. I think it came out in 1975. And it's a book, if you're interested in after-death stuff, you kind of at least need to know. You need to know who he is, and you need to know that that book came out and began that whole world. There are probably better books, you know, intervening 40, 50 years on that topic, but that's the one. That's where that all began. So you need to at least know about it. Yes, I like it. That was an interview I was lucky to get. He's such a kind soul. Oh, amazing guy. Yeah, a deeply nice person. Hard to do these days. Well, my number 10 is Penetration, the Question of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy by Ingo Swan. Yeah, good choice. <laughs> Not the best book ever. And if I actually revisited it, I might reread it and think it's a little over the top. There's a lot about the moon and moon bases, but it was probably the first book I read that kind of blended paranormal and conspiracy, or at least talked about an actual insider 
who was involved in these programs that were psi based and involved the paranormal. So for me, it was kind of formative. It was like, oh, okay. I don't have to feel silly about being interested in a lot of this stuff because the government's interested. This dude's pretty interested. He's got a talent for it. So maybe there's something here. Yeah. And it's going back to the idea of the classics. You have to have Ingo somewhere on a list of paranormal books. I've got a few authors who they might not. Raymond Moody's a good one. He needs to be on the list somewhere for some reason. And Ingo certainly is in that same category. Yeah, I agree. Same line of thinking got us our number 10s. Number nine, what do you have? I have Dr. Jim Tucker's Return to Life, which is his research into the past life memories of kids. He's done a couple of books on it, but this one was my absolute favorite. One, because that's, I think, again, one of those definitive researchers in that field. But two, my little nephew is now finishing primary school, is what we call it here. But up until the age of about five and a half, he would occasionally say things like, when are we going back to Holland? And that's, first of all, an anachronistic name for the country in question. It's almost like calling Belize British Honduras. It's something that, it's like an old-timey word that a five-year-old who'd never left Australia <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't know or understand. And what Dr. Tucker found in his research is that kids pretty much up until about the age of five and a half are more verbal with their past life memories, and then it fades, then it goes away somehow. So there's an interesting personal angle into what I thought was really fascinating research about the past life memories of kids all around the world, not just in cultures that have a framework of understanding for past lives, like in Hindu countries or whatever. Yeah, that is a good pick. And I'll just say I had in my runners up a couple books about kids remembering past lives. There's Children Who Remember Previous Lives, aptly named, by Dr. Ian Stevenson. And then I had Old Souls, Compelling Evidence from Children Who Remembered Past Lives by Tom Schroeder. And they just didn't make the cut. But it is a fascinating mechanism that is pretty real. There's that famous story of the kid who had all these details about World War II planes. He's like, yeah, I was a fighter pilot. And it made no sense. And then they actually tracked down his battalion and they got the group photo of the people in that troop or whatever. Not good with military language, but he's like, yeah, there I am. And like, I think he met them and they talked. It got really weird. But when you follow those threads, it just yields richer material, not like it was some big mistake. Exactly. There's another kid who remembered being in a war on Mars. I don't know what to make of that one or how to verify that. But then there's like kids who have like a scar on their forehead. They're like, that's where I got killed with an ax and my body's buried over here. And let's go find it. Oh, look, there's a body. Yeah. I find clients in, in my healing practice that they're obviously adult, but that have scars like that, that when we do the journey on it, it's like, oh, shit, you died in a fire in the 13th century in what is now Austria or whatever. You think, wow, that's some crazy stuff that's in there. But I, like, what fascinates me about it is kids, I mean, they do lie, but not elaborate stories about World War II. Yeah. So it's another one of those bodies of evidence that demand an explanation. You don't have to go with a past life model. You can say, well, they're accessing some kind of collective unconscious memory. If that's true, and it might be, well, then now you have to account for 
the fact that memories exist as this great global or cosmic ocean that humans can have access to. So it's still, there's no way through a book like Return to Life without ending up in a magical universe. Yeah, man, good term. I actually, that makes me remember that I was going to look for an Akashic Record book to fit in there. And I did, that also didn't make the cut. I was trying to like, what is the paranormal made up of if we filtered it down to subcategories? And then I just took the best of each of those things. And that kind of informs my process a little bit. But my number nine might be a rare case where the cover might be more famous than the book itself. Do you have a guess? Yes, it's uh, Mr. Streber, I'm going to say. Yep, communion. You nailed it. You yep. nailed it. Obviously, here for its place in paranormal history, always been a Whitley Streber fan. And I, I had to put it in there because he agreed to do another interview with me about his new book that just came out called Them, which looks very provocative. I'm going to do that, you know, once we get down to Florida. But man, just obviously a classic, obviously one of the most high profile people to have ongoing experiences. The book gets a little wordy at times. He's a verbose guy, but it's definitely a classic. It's something that to use your kind of barbecue example or party example, you present someone with, hey, this is this guy's testimony. These are his experiences. You could say he's lying, but it goes a lot deeper than little green men from outer space are messing with me. Yeah, there's absolutely no pushback from me about having Whitley Strieber on the list of the top 10 best paranormal books of all time. That's for sure. <laughs> I like it. All right. Next in line, number eight. Let us have it. All right. So I have John Keel, who, again, talking mm. about legends and classics, needs to be here somewhere. And I, again, assuming in my head that Greg went down a more cryptid angle, I'm going to leave certain monsters aside and look at. Either I couldn't, this is a co-equal, right? Our Haunted Planet or Operation Trojan Horse. Now, probably Our Haunted Planet, because Operation Trojan Horse, which I like better, is more UFO-y and almost like it almost could have made it onto the conspiracy books at the end of last year. But Keel is another person who belongs on a top 10 best paranormal books of all time, one way or the other. Again, great writer, imperfect, a bit of a, and I say this with love. A bit of a hack, like the, the writing's quite salacious in the sense that it's a really good read, <laughs> yeah. but it's got that pulp speed and energy to it. So it's not as precise and scientific as some of the other books on our list, but you can't do paranormal books without Mr. Keel. That's my thoughts. I agree. I agree. He makes an appearance on my list too. Good, good. My number eight, though, is Journeys Out of Body, the classic work on out-of-body experience by Robert Monroe. Just what a weird guy Robert Monroe was. I mean, just a normal guy who apparently started to have these experiences that he writes about unprompted, without willing it, without even knowing it was possible. And he went quite deep in the world of out-of-body. And just kind of like you were saying, Raymond Moody coined the term near-death experience. Yep. Monroe popularized out-of-body experience, from what I understand. Yep. But that's another one, just a classic walkthrough of a person's strange personal experiences. And it was one that I wanted to revisit. I was pretty sure I wanted it on the list. And I was like, man, I wish I 
knew what box this was in because I would dig it up. But I wanted to be reminded of some of the, the content in his accounts. And I just went and was reading some reviews of it. And just here's one that touches on the finer points. Monroe's account of his travels, journey out of body, jam-packed with parasitic goblins and dead humans, astral sex, scary trips into mind-boggling other mind-bogglingly other dimensions and practical tips on how to get out of your body all told with humor and quickly became a cult sensation with its publication in 1971 and i agree like i had to read some of that i'm like yeah there is some astral sex in there you got to have astral sex in a paranormal top 10 i feel like that's a given yeah and uh so robert monroe he hits number eight for me I mean, until we do an astral sex top 10, then yeah, this is where that's got to go. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, no argument here. Robert Monroe is another classic. And again, in the world of astral travel, journeying, and so on, particularly if you want to do it practically, there are, if not better than more modern books, but you just can't avoid the fact that it's all downstream from Mr. Monroe. And I like that you mentioned that he actually had a normal life. He was just a businessman, and then this stuff started happening to him. So. He's on the list for two reasons. He wrote the definitive book that began this whole process and the Monroe Institute and all of that, but also because he himself is like a paranormal figure in a Whitley sense. Like this stuff happened to him. He didn't go looking for it. Yes. And I, to me, that's key when it comes to being convincing. Yeah. Yeah. So moving right along, what do you got for number seven? I have Dr. Rick Strassman's DMT, the spirit molecule. Mm. And again, the logic behind that is similar to the other ones. I wanted some kind of, I guess, shamanic book, but as we discussed at the beginning, it's probably a different list, a list of magic spirit world kind of stuff. But I did need or felt that it required or warranted some kind of scientific interface into the implications of human access to a spirit world. And that's, of course, the a recounting of the famous DMT experiments that were well, the first round of them that he ran that gave scientific evidence supporting the idea that we actually really do go somewhere because the encounters that we have are similar across cultures and across people's experiences. So that was my thoughts, DMT, the spirit molecule. Yeah, that's a surprise. I thought about it. I did consider it. And then it didn't make the list because, as you say, you could put it into a different list altogether. I wanted to include a shamanism book, and it was going to be Dr. Greg Little and Andrew Collins with their book, Origins of the Gods, because it just flipped the light switch for me about plasma and this long lineage of shamanism and earth energies and stone circles. And he just brings a lot of interesting things together as in terms of like these were meeting places with these plasma beans, it's a wild read, but it's also very recent. And even though it was a light switch moment for me, light bulb moment for me, it just sometimes you read something you're like this is great, but it's just too recent to be on a top 10 of all time list. I don't know. It's just a weird contradiction for me. But I get it. I'm follow that logic for sure. Yeah. And then I thought if I'm going to include that one, I got to start considering starships. And now we're talking about kind of like megaliths and ancient civilizations. And that's, again, its own adjacent but separate list, I would say. So, um, yeah, it's a great book. I love it. No, my personal approach to that was the same, right? Like, 
to some extent, I thought my latest book, Animistic, would be that. And I'm like, I can't, first of all, and the logic was the same. The first was like, how monstrously insane is it to put <laughs> your own book on a top 10 list, right? But also it came out literally last year. So there's a couple of reasons. 95% of it is the first one, which is that's insane, Gordon, don't ever do that. But the second is, it's too recent. How can you put that on the same list as communion, for goodness sake? Fair. You need at least a good five years, I'd say, maybe 10. Yeah, at least. Yeah. But we'll do this again. I'm sure you'll be on the list. My number <laughs> seven was uh, The Trickster and the Paranormal, George P. Hansen. Very nice. It is a book I really enjoyed. Uh, basically, a textbook on the trickster archetype. It's a good deep dive into trickster folklore from all over. And it was maybe the first book that got me to think about a bunch of different phenomenon as manifestations of the trickster or a certain trickster energy. And it kind of got into that valet space of what you're seeing is a presentation by something deceptive behind the curtain. And it's just a really good book. I mean, it's an academic look at all this stuff from the perspective of maybe it's the trickster. We were actually in conversation about doing an interview back when I still had a nine to five job and my job conflicted with it. And then I think he got just sick of dealing with this stupid kid who can't get a day off work and uh, it fizzled out. But I might try again. I mean, the dude is awesome. And that book is another classic, I would say. Yeah, he was one of my early guests as well. And I went through the logic of whether that one is on my list. I'm glad it's on yours because it isn't on mine. And a couple of reasons for that is the cosmology is there in, I'm not going to spoil the rest of my list, but even in something like John Keel, right? So the cosmology of you're dealing with a phenomena that, or phenomena that have caprice. So I felt like I covered the angle without including the book because what I will say it's one of the difficulties with being the first book in something is, and I kind of, we discussed this briefly when he was on my show, is I think he oversells the impact of the trickster. Like, it's all trickster. And it's like, that's not quite right. A lot of it is, <laughs> but, but yeah. not all of it. But this is the trouble when you're the first person or when you are the first book, you almost have to oversell to make an impact. So it's not a criticism in that sense, but good choice. Definitely. And I know it is a little bit of that when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail thing, but I like those people. For some reason, it just doesn't bother me that that's their approach to like really laying it all out and making their case that everything is this thing, because I'm like, man, you made a pretty good case. I guess some things are that thing. Like it's just clearly nothing is everything. So clearly everybody is missing a little piece of it, but for some reason, when you start looking at comments or you talk to people about a book, it's like, well, clearly not everything's a trickster. It's like, well, I know, I know, but he has to at least think it is to get this book written, as you say. 100%. And it's the first book that really made me start thinking about that. So I thought it was a great one. Uh, number six, we're working our way through. Time is looking pretty good. Yeah. So this is the first double up because this is Robert Monroe making it onto my list. So yeah, everything we just said about Journey's Out of the Body, I would just like to reiterate. This is a classic <laughs> book. A lot of astral sex. Well, not really, but there's some astral sex in there, as you pointed out. And if you haven't read it, that's now on both lists. So do think about it. It's also the first book on either list, I think, so far that is instructional. 
or maybe Raymond Moody is as well, is giving tips to the reader on how to have paranormal experiences. But this one certainly is a little bit of a, a workbook, too. Yeah, a workbook on astral sex. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. I, I, life after life, Raymond Moody has written books like Reunion that do give instructions, but Life After Life is not. So you're right. This is the first practical book on the list. Mm. Yes. And so my number six is a recent one after just having the conversation about books need time, but Trojan Feast, the food and drink offerings of aliens, fairies, and Sasquatch by Joshua Kutchin. It's on there really because I just think he is kind of the new guard in writing really creative and deep paranormal books. Even the Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth look at smells in the paranormal world. And Thieves in the Night, a brief history of supernatural child abductions. That was almost going to be it, but that's something he wrote a little bit later on. And it really was Trojan Feast that was his first book, kind of put him on the radar. And it's very deep. And there's a lot of uh, correlation between these different types of entities and the mechanisms or rules or processes involved in gifting and the types of food given and all kinds of wild stuff. I, I think he's really great. And that's why he's on my list at number six. Yeah, it's a good choice because a lot of people today lazily echo, let's say, the Valayan hypothesis, the Jacques Vallée hypothesis. But what Josh did, which I think, and you can kind of pick any of his books as long as you put him on the list, right, is he went down a explicitly phenomenological and sensory research path. So pulling the implications of, let's call it, a Valayan hypothesis into the actual physical felt presence and experience of these encounters which no one had done before. So I, when he's on my show, I joke, it's called the stank book or whatever. But <laughs> that's a big deal because phenomenology is a field of, was a philosophical school that has some really powerful things to say about the kind of stuff we're discussing with these lists. And no one had done that before. No one had actually explored the felt sense of the more than human, the paranormal in a rigorous and informed way like Josh did. So good choice. Yeah, it's really hard to be creative and unique in a crowded field. And so many people are just regurgitating even just collections of stories that have been in six, seven, eight other books. And so at this stage to be so creative, not just once, but several times, uh, kudos to him. I'm a big fan. All right. And so we are halfway time-wise and list-wise. It's like uh, we've done this before or something. But number five, let us have it. Reality of ESP by Dr. Russell Targ, which we spoke about on the conspiracy list as well. And it didn't make it onto that list because the majority of the book isn't that, even though obviously I think people listening to this show will be aware it's Dr. Tug's story of the Stargate program and, and remote viewers and NASA funding and the ups and downs. Not so much the downs, you have to find out how and why it was shut down elsewhere. But it is the presentation of the scientific evidence over Grill Flame and Stargate and all the rest of it, making the case for telepathy and psi capacities and remote viewing, all kind of couched in the story of his 
journey with those programs. And it is the second book on the list that is instructional because it also has the easiest route into experimenting with remote viewing yourselves should you wish to do so. Mm-hmm. Great book. I also considered it. It was knocked off the list basically because the Ingo Swan book is my government side program book. So I just yeah. felt like, man, 20% is a lot. <laughs> That's me in reverse. So I, because I put Dr. Targ on the list, I'm like, I don't have Ingo. But I'm, you know what? I kind of do because Ingo's in reality. Of ESP. <laughs> so I understand the logic in reverse. And I'm glad that this isn't a double up then because I don't have, or not yet, because let's not surprise people, Ingo and mine, but I do have Dr. Tug. So if you are diligent enough to be buying all of these books one way or the other, you're going to get a nice extensive overview. I will say that I would be surprised if Ingo enters into your top five. It'll be interesting to see. But I think if he made it on your list, we would have heard about it already. Yeah, you know me too well, Gregory. <laughs> he, he gets a little wild. He gets a little wild. So I figured you would go with the more academic look at similar stuff. And I would go with the crazy over the top, uh, nutty one. That's appropriate. Well, number five for me, this is my John Keel slot. And this is a, a, another one where it's like, I knew the author was going to be on the list. And then I started racking my brain about which book, not having access to them. But I picked The Eighth Tower on Ultra Terrestrials and the Super Spectrum. Yeah. This is, I believe, the one he wrote right after Mothman Prophecies. And I liked a lot. It was the first book for me that suggested ley lines or the Earth's magnetic field could be in play with some of these experiences. Obviously, he's got a full range of books. It would be cheating to just find a book that is a collection of all of them, a big phone book fucking thing, and just say, there it is. But uh, The Eighth Tower for me, when I racked my brain, it was the one that was the most clear, and thus it felt appropriate. Interesting. So the Mothman as a being isn't going to make it onto either list. And I'll, I'll give you my logic on that, right? If we were doing a list of films, and I would say explicitly DVDs of the paranormal, the Mothman prophecies, the DVD of the film would have made it onto the list. One, because the film is excellent, but it came out at the time when it was peak DVD extras. And there's a couple of really good extras on the DVD, interviews with Keel, little documentaries about the phenomena, to the point that I think the DVD of the Richard Gere film is literally better <laughs> than John Keel's book, assuming you've read his other books. Okay, so I don't mean like, should you watch a Richard Gere film and never read John Keel? I mean, if you know who John Keel is, the DVD of the film is better, or you'll get more out of it than the book, funnily enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, Mothman, it was tough because I almost just went with Mothman prophecies because that is the kind of the cliche pick you would expect. And I just wanted to go a little deeper because I just think he's got a lot of really rich material besides that, even though that's the one everyone knows. And the Mothman just isn't super relevant long-term. I mean, it was a bright and loud flash in the pan. Like for a very specific moment in time, it was a really interesting thing that happened or series of things, but it seems to be gone now. And so thus, I just, in a top 10 list, I couldn't do it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Man, 
All right, now we're getting really into it. These better be some seriously good books, you would think. Although on my conspiracy list, my number one was just kind of like an encyclopedia of conspiracy by David Icke, but <laughs> that's me. So number four, what do you got? I have The Skull Experiments by Grant and Jane Solomon. Oh, I like it. I like it. That is a book, and I'll let you go on about it, but that is a book I learned about from you, and then I got it dove into it, was really impressed, talked to the authors about coming on, and we got very close, but they had some upcoming project they wanted to wait to be able to promote. And then I asked about that, and I don't think that project came to fruition. I don't know if it was a documentary based on the book or what, but that's kind of where we left that. But tell people why the Skull Experiments is so interesting. Yeah, I will. And I had the exact same journey. This is back when the podcast just started and literally just started. It would have been one of my top well, first five guests. And I messaged Jane on Facebook is how I managed to find her. That's how far back <laughs> we're going. And she said the same thing. She's like, God, it's been so long since I wrote the book and we got other stuff coming up. And it's, you know, said with love about Whitley, because I've had the same conversation with him. Listen, if you write a classic book, people are going to want to talk about it. And it's, we care less about your new album. And, uh, <laughs> and that's where we were with the Skull Experiments. But this is you can, or at least I haven't looked in six or seven years, but you can find Skull Experiments documentaries on YouTube. The book is obviously better if you can find it, but this is a series of seances conducted over, well, actually over years, but in kind of like two chunks of several months. And it demonstrates what happens and what can happen when a group of people who are used to sitting together in ceremony, which is to say in seance, the kind of effects they can achieve because it is the wildest and best recorded collection of the stuff that can happen in a seance. They were getting words printed on film still in the canister before it had even been brought out and turned into photos. It, they were getting apported objects, manifestations. They were getting sounds and stuff that happened outside of the actual seances themselves. The book is excellent. The documentary is excellent. This lands on the list because it's one of those Also, going back to the barbecue, I don't know what ghosts are, Greg, but (laughs) I know that there's something behind the phenomena that we refer to as ghosts. And this would be the book that I would hand to someone at a barbecue going, well, riddle me this then, Mr. Skeptic. It's excellent. And it's the best of, I needed a ghost book and even a seance book somewhere in there. And so the Skull Experiments is it. I love it. I love it. I really did expect to see that pop up somewhere on your list. And four for me is Daemonic Reality, A Field Guide to the Other World by Patrick Harper. I just think Patrick Harper is such an interesting guy. He's very humble, but he's written deeply about many subjects. His alchemy book is really good, but Daemonic Reality kind of takes a Jungian approach and also kind of a lot of things from Greek philosophers and the Romans who basically had a pretty good model, a pretty good map. Some people, the ones he highlights, a pretty good model for what these entities are and where they live and their function in the world. It's really dense, but I liked it a lot. And it kind of, uh, it's one of those books that when you're reading it, there's like a clarity. You're like, oh, I get exactly what you're saying. And this model makes sense to me as to how to put logic behind some really insane stuff that happens. And then you finish it and someone's like, explain it to me. And then it's really hard to do. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm glad that's on your list because it was number 10 on my list until about 20 minutes before we started recording. And I just couldn't get it, mostly because the cosmology or the framework of understanding that he explores in that, which is excellent, I think I get overlaps by the time you're done with my list. And that's why it didn't make it. But I, if we had a longer list, it's, I'm so glad it's on yours, right? And I actually wanted it at number 10 in my thinking, because if people start with that and then move into evidence for a child's recollections of previous lives, the skull experiments, the reality of ESP, when you move into the data, you actually have a framework that I'm more simpatico with, which would be in that Harper world. So I'm glad it's on our lists somewhere. Very good choice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we are down to the top three. And I'm curious, I have some thoughts about what I think might make an appearance, but tell us your number three. No, no, no. <laughs> what do you think's on the podium? And I will be poker face about it so that we still surprise people. But what, what do you think's on the podium? Well, I know Jacques Vallée is going to come up and I don't know when, but I'm thinking it's got to be soon. Uh, I would think that possibly the one that you're going to say is Passport to Magonia when you get to one of his books. But give us your number three. Number three has come up on this list without being on this list. And that's Dr. Dean Radin's Real Magic, ah. which you didn't put on yours, but I, it made the podium. It gets a bronze medal on mine. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And this is, again, going back to that, all right, well, I'm going to science up the idea of magic for my hypothetical cynical. I don't know why I keep inviting these people to my barbecues, but these <laughs> hypothetical cynical people. If you're looking for the best ever <laughs> compilation of, let's call it the impact of human intentionality on the physical world, that's where you get it. You get it in the research that Dean both performs and pulls together in Real Magic. So it, I understand why it's not on your list, but it satisfies the insane criteria that meant that it not only makes it onto my list, but gets a bronze medal. Yeah, and it is a great book. Really, it is a side book because it is about largely the, the experiments I remember are Buddhist monks and spiritualists meditating over growing crops and showing that there is a real intention effect on those crops. And obviously, there's more than one case study in that book. But because he calls it magic, I was like, well, it is magic. But you were actually one of the first people to make me think about magic and size similar, which seems crazy now, but I think way back when, 10 years ago, I was still in this, like, we're drawing pentagrams and we're getting the robes and the daggers and saying the chants. And obviously that's magic too. Grimoires are dense and real and you can summon things, but I never really broadened magic out to just simply psi effects. So that's interesting that you were the one who kind of put that in my head and also that you would put the book that does the same thing here on the list. It's funny because I'm in that book for that reason. There's a couple of quotes from me in Real Magic. So it's the second time I'm on the list because I'm also quoted for basically the same reasons in Josh's book. So it wasn't just you that, <laughs> that got that from, I suppose, my early work, which is that you can do a 100% overlap with the so-called magical powers of classical antiquity and what we call psi capacities of humans today. So again, that's why it kind of fits in the book, because the implications are 
paranormal reality includes humans that can do magical things. Yeah. And it's a great one. I mean, I remember interviewing him and, and saying that exact thing. Like, if you need to convince someone that magic can be real and is real, here are the results. And my number three is skull experiments, funny oh, enough. Nice. The one you just detailed for us. <laughs> good choice. It is good. So my, that was my four and your three. So at the moment, if you add them together, that's pretty high up. That's one if people haven't read, they want to they want to go out and find choice. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy that there aren't more books of this type of this quality to make this list, because it is like just full blown balls to the wall. We're going for it. We're going to do the seances. We're going to record the, re the results. And they had skeptics there who experienced things like, I believe, even to the degree of a solid being appearing. and. Yeah, objects materialized. It's wild. You make a good point there, Greg, which is if you do books like that today, so like Leslie Kane's book on afterlife stuff, right? It has to be couched in the whole, I was a skeptic. And then I, you go on this little journey of like, I'm, I'm a hard-nosed reporter <laughs> being very difficult to hoodwink and very difficult to convince. And you have to paint this author journey of going from skeptic to, well, maybe there's something to it. What, <laughs> what Grant and Jaina do is the opposite. It's like, no, we do seances. Come on, <laughs> moving right in. And there's actually, that's important. It's important to kind of highlight there's a bravery to, mm, this is some kind of real, and we're going to do some research into it rather than going on the, dare I say, tired from a creative perspective journey of, oh, I didn't think anything about this to something about it. Mm -hmm. And it's the only book thus far, besides maybe Trickster and the Paranormal, that I could see a creative college course being based around. Interesting. Which is kind of special. I mean, I'll, demonic, demonic reality maybe as well, but this would probably be the top one that, I mean, I've seen college courses on the philosophy of the Simpsons and the Matrix, so True. I feel like the Skull <laughs> Experiment should make uh, the cut there. It would be um, interesting to see something like that, but, or just to reignite and try to, try to duplicate. I don't know if they continue on. Like, I don't really know what the Solomons, which is a funny name to be the authors of this book. If they were on my show, I would have brought that up because Solomonic magic is literally the European technique of bringing spirits to visible appearance. And two people whose name is Solomon do the definitive late 20th century research on doing exactly that. There's something going on there, which you can build a model of understanding or explanation around by reading some of the other books on this list. Yeah, that's so wild. I mean, I knew that it was a provocative name, but not so on the nose. It's like Anthony Weiner can't put his Weiner away. Bernie Madoff made off with everybody's money. It is yeah. strange when names sync up like that. Even Trump, Trump seems to trump all other politicians and all conventional ways of campaigning. This Trump, Trump Tower 2016, the 16th Tower, Trump is the tower. It's all kind of in there. Yeah, yeah. And the Trump-Pence thing, I always thought that was interesting. Yeah. The apocalypse will be ushered in with Trump-Pence. And then it's like, what the hell? Of all the two, mm -hmm. now you're combining names and you're getting exact on-the-nose things. But that's that trying to make biblical prophecy happen from behind the curtain, I think. And what it means, and there's something in demonic reality or other books that are on our list about that. It's like something's going on 
where meaning is in the universe. It's not something we're making up. We are at least partially finding it out there rather than it just being generated in our heads. And that's, I think, one of the the medicines and rewards of going through a list of paranormal books, actually taking the time to sit down and read them. Yeah, good points. And there's also that thing like the universe runs on blank. And a lot of people would say, oh, it runs on love. Or I think you've said desire before. And I've heard somebody say narrative. And I always liked that the idea that there's like a gravity well around a good story and the universe like has some conscious awareness that if this person goes there or if this guy marries that girl or whatever, whatever, we can make a good story here. It's like a director trying to make narrative out of the chaos. And there is some kind of gravitation to good story. I just always thought that was cool. I don't know how accurate it is, but it seems like it's somewhere in the mix. Well, that's Terrence McKenna says that, like there we said go. that, that why is the universe shaped like a story? And funnily enough, I think the universe runs on magic, but I think it's pulled into the future by desire. And that's something I, I thought I was maybe just a weird me thing. But during my shamanic training, something Alberto Violdo said was that we think the universe runs on consciousness. It runs on magic. The universe is magic. And it's like, I think, a better baseline word than consciousness because it frames a lot of the weirdness that we're talking about in this book list, but it also makes available, well, if that's the case, then that's why narrative shapes the universe, because spells are these things we create with words and stories that shape stuff. But yeah, I guess that would be perhaps unsurprising for me to have that take. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. And now that we are down to the last two, I think we might have the same two books. I don't know, but I would not be surprised because I find it weird that the two authors I have here wouldn't make your list at all. But we shall see. Number two, what do you got? Charles Fort, Book of the Damned. <laughs> Hilarious. That is not my number two, but <laughs> mine is Passport to Magonia, Jacques Vallée. Uh, but hit us with why Book of the Damned is, is your number two. If you don't know who Charles Fort is, and if you haven't read this book, you need to go to Paranormal Jail. <laughs> Charles Fort is the originator of <laughs> everything useful, or the, the guy who got there first, of everything useful when it comes to high strangeness studies, cryptid paranormal studies, contemporary understandings of Gnosticism, wherever you want. He's an early 20th century author and researcher who also began with kind of humble beginnings, working in grocery stores in New York and what have you, and would go to the public library and read newspapers from around the world that were filled with giant ants falling over Mumbai and strange stories of things seen at sea. And he just collected these damned facts, these things that broke reality. And he built a model of reality based on the fact that weird stuff happens and essentially overwhelms a dominant paradigm. So science, which was the outgoing paradigm, he uses different terms for it, but let's just go with this, which is the outgoing paradigm swamped the previous one, which was religious, and it swamped it with geology and biology and so on. It swamped this notion, this way of making things true, which was that a male expert in a religious book would tell you what is and isn't reality. Science swamps that as a method of inquiry, as an epistemology. And what he noticed, he declared the end of the scientific 
paradigm, basically in the early 20th century, because he's looking at all this weird shit happening and going, this, they cannot explain this. It just, it has to make it non-existent, but it does exist. So it's almost like werewolves and Bigfoots and sea monsters crawling over the walls of a city to lay waste to Science Town. And that he had this model, and something would replace this one too, this dominant of wider inclusions, he called it, but this world where the high strange becomes real. And, you know, leaving a discussion for another time, what's going on with the US military and Pentagon disclosures around UFOs, we nevertheless operate in a world where that's allowed to be true. So he got there first. He built this, frankly, entire genre <laughs> that we're talking about. And on top of that, he was a really good motherfucking writer. Like even now, a hundred years later, he's funny. He's actually a pleasant read. So Charles Fort is where we get the word Fortian from. He's, yeah, he's the font and fountainhead of this. And he missed the number one spot by a hair. I'll just say that. Hilarious. Well, my number two is Passport to Magonia from Folklore to Flying Saucers by the great Jacques Vallée. It is the first book I read with a deep historical context for the UFO question and broadening it out to what it can be, talking about Elfland and Magonian sky beans. I still find Magonia to be one of the most provocative bits of like paranormal material. I interviewed Schwab and I was happy of all the things he's written about. He wrote deeply about Magonia as well. And I was like, yeah, we are talking about this. And it's just a really interesting book. And it's a high level book, I would say, about what the paranormal context should be, where we should be with it. And of course, as you say all the time, he spawned a kind of a new way of looking at these things. And it's now cliche to be a valet you know, to have a Valayan approach to what UFOs and aliens are. But yeah, that's my number two. Totally. And so Passport to Magonia belongs on this list because it is the classic. It's where he began. I think I have, I have other books of his later on in his work that I prefer, particularly Dimensions. Dimensions is almost like an updated version of the Magonia cosmology. But yeah, I mean, it's Jacques. <laughs> what else can you say? Like, he needs to be on this list for sure. Yes, indeed. And uh, let's do it. What do you got for number one? So you think, do you think this, having what I just said to be the case, you think this is Valet? Yeah, I think it's probably Dimensions. No, afraid not. It wow. is The Supernatural by Dr. Jeff Kripal and Whitley Strieber. So Whitley ah. makes it onto my list. We have some overlaps that are like tangential, <laughs> but that's why Communion isn't on my list because actually Whitley shares the gold medal <laughs> with Dr. Jeff Kripal for the supernatural. Now my logic again goes back to this asshole I keep inviting to my barbecue. <laughs> I think Jacques is too much to convince a cynic right away because he writes in that you can tell he thinks in French and then writes in English because he's French. That's not, a, <laughs> that's not an insult, which means some of it, I love it. Some of it's a bit fruity for someone who needs data to be convinced cynically. And I think the foremost exploration of the implications of Jacques, because they're, of course, friends of Jacques' cosmology, where it hits 
palatable parts of academia, including the humanities, is with Dr. Jeff Kripal. And The Supernatural, which is a book that's written, Jeff does one, Whitley does the other chapter, in this dialogue, is just this powerful read that you get to the end of it. And in a funny way, it kind of sums up so much of what we just spoke about there. And I think it is genuinely the best, (laughs) obviously, because it's made the number one spot, the best summation of the paranormal in book form that you can read. And I have in brackets, because this was the bit where, again, 20 minutes before (laughs) we were recording, I have in brackets, Jeff's earlier book, Authors of the Supernatural, because what I was trying to, what I was hoping I could put somewhere on this list is maybe a Mitch Horowitz history book of, you know, occult America, where you, you understand what was going on with the spiritualists in the 19th century and some of the new thought research and the history of the kind of world that we're talking about. If you read Authors of the Supernatural, which is long extended interviews with kings of this world, including Jacques Vallée, you get this powerful overview of, a powerful historical overview of the field of inquiry that we're talking about. So it's, Jeff is on the list. I'm glad he shares it with Whitley. That's actually what put the supernatural in the number one spot, because you can't get to the end of a book list like this without Whitley, (laughs) as we discussed. I'm glad you got communion. And yours was 10, right? So Whitley gets 10th and first spot. (laughs) There's something weird going on there. That's good, though. And it it is a good pick. I can show you. I have my runners-up, and it is the first book on my runners-up list. And... I think it's probably because Jeff Kripal doesn't answer my interview requests. I was like, I'm going to have to make room for somebody else. (laughs) I'm I'm half kidding, but it is a great book. And I'm just surprised it is your number one. I know you're a Jeff Kripal fan, but man, didn't know it was to that degree. And that's really, for people who haven't read it, it really is that good. And that's the book I was was hinting at earlier that came out when I was like, Kindle is the future. This crappy little um, plastic device I'm carrying with me on the tube to work is totally what books are going to become, which I really only thought for, let's say, three weeks. But during those three weeks, Supernatural came out. <laughs> I bought it on Kindle. So this morning, I jumped on a certain CIA bookstore and got myself a paper copy, which, given that I live in Tasmania, we'll get here hopefully for Christmas. <laughs> but uh, Jack didn't make it to the list because, one, because he's shot through my whole list. But two, in my head, he fit more in the conspiracy book side of things, which he did make it to in the last book list we did. Not because I don't think, obviously, people should read him. I think they should. But my goal was to convince this person at my barbecue of the realities of what we call the paranormal. And this was my approach. Now, I'm very interested to hear yours. Somehow is it David Icke again? (laughs) (laughs) I wish. I tried. But no, it is Charles Fort. It is Book of the Damned. Good. And because it's everything you said. I mean, he is the guy who kind of started. I mean, Fortean research is a whole term because of him folded under the umbrella of paranormal. And it is the most interesting stuff in the paranormal box to me. So it's so weird that the term has kind of died out. People like Joshua Cutchin are bringing it back. I mean, Schwab says in the description of his Substack that it is Fortean in nature. So there's a few people using that descriptor, and there's some of my favorite people out there, but very, very few. And it is crazy that 
it can be so old and yet so unique and so seemingly still original. It's like a weird paradox that the oldest is somehow the most original in a crowded field. But I also love his writing. I even took a screenshot a few weeks back where he's talking about kind of the progress of science and, you know, tongue in cheek, making fun of Nature magazine and just talking about how it's all mapped out and we've made all this progress. And says, but by progress, I mean rape. Yeah. <laughs> like, like we have raped the, the natural world of any meaning with our scientific progress. It's like that kind of language in 1930. I mean, very good. Speaking of Dr. Kripal, he says, and it's half true, frankly, that Charles Fort invented postmodernism. And I know that some people listening to this aren't a fan of postmodernism, but what that means is he was basically, before Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions and the rest of it, he built this evolutionary epistemology that showed that something will come after science. You have to understand how insane and brilliant that was in the early 20th century. In the late 1900s in London, people from wealthy families were directed into law rather than science at university because they figured everything was within a few years of being discovered and found out. So there was kind of no point to a scientific career because it'll all be over come 1905, 1906. How dumb that sounds to <laughs> us now, but to Charles, it was dumb. That was, no, this is wrong. Not wrong. This is ending. <laughs> this is ending as a means of describing truth because it can't. It cannot contain the wideness that is truth. So it's such a good book. And I think one of the reasons people have moved away from the Fortean word is frankly because the magazine Fortean Times, its last, let's say, 15 years of publication have been trash and descending into almost Scooby-Doo villain, really tawdry examples of debunking and almost like the opposite of the energy of Charles Fort himself. So the word has been cast by the wayside. And if you're right that other people who aren't like that are picking it up, then that's good news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And it is, it is his first book. His later ones are also good, but he, I'd say he tries too hard to come up with a theory of everything, trying to figure it all out. And in the, in the first book, He's more like framing out, these are the things I'm trying to talk about. And I have to say it a thousand different ways because these things are so marginalized that people just put them in a didn't happen category because they can't compute what's going on. So he does kind of spend a lot of time coming at every different angle of what he means by damned facts. So that might be a criticism, but you still, it helps you get into that mindset. And oh, totally. it's still required today because we still have a materialist context. Totally, totally. Good list. Yeah, I would say so. I don't know if I was really surprised by a whole lot that was on your list, except the fact that Valet didn't make it. I feel like you probably just wanted to buck expectations there a bit. A bit of it. You know, it's, I was tempted to say, because you made the joke about Jeff not replying to your emails, Shark. When I invited him on the show, said, oh, sorry, I'm too busy. And that was years ago. And I'm like, oh, well, fuck you then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not really, but I want to make, the, I want to pretend that I've invented a beef with Jacques Vallée and that's why he's not on the list. It's not at all true. But I, I think we were kind of shadow boxing because we've done this before with the conspiracy list. And so maybe the thing that I should have put on or got left behind was I figured you'd do more cryptids. So 
you mentioned Missing 411 and that whole world that could belong here. I think that's where some stuff got not necessarily, well, left off because I was shadowboxing going like, well, I'm pretty sure Greg's going to mention Belay and he's going to do all the Bigfoot stuff so I can mercifully leave that behind. But if we look at this list, if we combine both of these lists, this is a really good beginner's library. Say beginner's library. Enjoy that $350 spend. <laughs> but yeah, this is, if you get every book <laughs> that we mentioned and even some of the side ones and you read this, well done. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, I would ask you just to round this out with uh, runners up. I mean, as you mentioned, you would expect me to have done the cryptozoology thing. I almost picked a different John Keel book for that reason, because he's got The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, and funny enough, Disneyland of the Gods, which is a great description for reality. And, uh, you know, I just went with Eighth Tower because it was freshest in my mind. But I also considered Lauren Coleman. I mean, Cryptozoology A to Z, the Encyclopedia of Loch Ness Monsters, Sasquatch, Chupacabras, and other authentic mysteries of nature could have made it, but it's that term of nature. Not that the paranormal and these things aren't part of nature. Obviously, everything is, but sometimes Coleman leans towards just undiscovered animals. Yeah. And that to me is not paranormal. That's why I had a hard time finding a good cryptozoology book that was metaphysical instead of just suggesting, well, there's just undiscovered apes out in the redwoods. Another uh, book that was kind of like that, that was a runner-up of mine, was Caverns, Cauldrons, and Concealed Creatures by William Michael Mott. I don't know that it would be the best book if I revisited it, but it is a lot about the underground and stories of creatures that just defy other categories, like the Prussian cave entity that was like this little goblin thing that popped up with some monks that were in like a wine cellar, and it has this long dialogue with them. A lot of these stories, I think even the Green Children of Wolf Pit, some of the main stories that I consider like the best paranormal stories he, he writes about in that book is not the only place you'll find them, but it's a pretty damn good collection of things. Those are a couple of runners-up, cryptozoology runners-up. What about you? What do you have on your uh, cutting room floor? Well, obviously, Ballet and Strieber and so on, even though Strieber technically made it to number one for me. But I had Lynn McTaggart, who you mentioned earlier, had The Field. And again, it's not, she's too fancy <laughs> to be on a list with these freaks. So um, that's why she wasn't on the list, although I, I consider her work very important. Similarly, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, for the same reason that it's, again, for the hypothetical idea of convincing someone of the reality of things, Sheldrake has, was one of the first to integrate what we would call psi phenomena or human intentionality and consciousness with the biological, with morphogenetic fields and so on. So he was on the list. He didn't last very long on the list because I'm like, no, again, He's too fancy. <laughs> He's too fancy for a list with like John Keel. And I, that's all said with love, obviously. So those were, that whole oeuvre was, or that whole world was quickly relegated to maybe we do this for, <laughs> with a different topic. And similarly, some autobiographies or biographies of people who do high, strange or weird things, even Tobias Churton's biographies of someone like Alistair Crowley, 
But there's a bunch of stories of, let's say, ethnobotanist goes into the Amazon, comes out a shaman. And during that process, having all these strange things happening to him or her, I had that as a category to look at because I'm very interested in how the high strange or the paranormal can happen to us and us happen to it in non-Western frameworks. So those are the two broad category areas that I was looking at that didn't quite make it to the list. But in terms of actual people, McTaggart, Sheldrake, and so on. Yeah, that would be another good list is the best biographies or biographical approaches to all these things, magic, paranormal, and conspiracy. Gary Lockman would definitely end up there because he's written about some crazy people in the past, some really good work. Yeah, and even Diana Welsh Pasulka's stuff on St. Teresa of Avila, because whatever else she was, she was plainly an experiencer. So I had a list that could, I could build a list of people who had weird things happening to them and ended up with, let's just say, magical powers. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in fact, Jacques could be on that list because he did see stuff as a kid before he left France. So funnily enough, that was the stuff that I think is relevant to this wider discussion of the paranormal. But for the purposes of getting down to a list of 10 books, didn't quite make it. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually thought potentially Dolores Cannon would have made it on your list, but maybe she's a little new agey, crunchy. I don't know. But in terms of uh, between death and life conversations with a spirit, that's a pretty damn good book. I mean, in its time and place. Sure, for sure. Absolutely. I also even considered putting final events on Nick Redfern, you know, his Collins Elite book. (laughs) I was like, that's conspiracy. It's not going to make the cut. Correct. That's literally (laughs) what happened with me as well. My favorite Nick book didn't, didn't make it to the list for that exact reason. And the only two other ones I wanted to at least mention were The Messengers, Owl's Synchronicity and the UFO Abductee by Mike Clellan. It is a really good book and it's unique. It's an interesting, creative take. I don't know that it is a top 10 because for a top 10, I think you want to be more in the lane of paranormal, at least broadly. Like this is such a specific and weird take to fold owls in that it's provocative. It makes for a great read and a great interview, but it didn't make the list, but it is still in its own right. Pretty damn cool. I don't know if you've read that one. I definitely have. I agree. I don't think it's a top 10, but if we did, and I don't think we will, but if there was a cryptid list, it would, even though it's not quite, he's not saying owls are cryptids, but that whole idea of screen memory and how an animal like that can interface with the high strange and instantiate and and be part of it. Very useful and fruitful discussion. Definitely a good book. Probably not, as you say, a top 10. Yeah. The owls are not what they seem. Exactly. And the only other one to mention is Larry E. Arnold's Ablaze. It is an interview I did, probably the one in recent years with the worst audio, which is so sad because the content is good. But he wrote basically the textbook on spontaneous human combustion. It is really good for anyone who's ever dismissed spontaneous human combustion as people falling asleep with cigarettes in their mouth or something like that. It's absolutely not that. It's a very strange phenomenon. I'll bite it very rare. But he wrote 
a really great book on it and it should be folded into a paranormal list somewhere because it definitely had its day. And Charles Fort actually commented on spontaneous human combustion saying that he thought it was potentially some kind of predator that attacks its prey through fire or through something, that there's a consciousness behind it, a plasma being or something. Creative idea, but yeah, that was going to be my wild card was a spontaneous human combustion book, and I can think of no better one. Nice. All right. Well, yeah, I guess we can call that the list then. Anything else to add before we close out the list conversation? Oh, I think we, I'm excited by this. I almost want to crack some of them, <laughs> crack some of them open and read them again. It's really fun to do this. It stirs up what you like about these books and these authors in the first place. So, but I'm going to hold off until the supernatural in print form actually arrives. But yeah, well done. I think we did a good job of this. Yeah. These two shows we did, yours and mine, very fun companion shows. And I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. Nice. And as we are wrapping up, I know you're working on at least one new book and you got the foundations course, which seems very ambitious and timely. And it seems like the whole infrastructure got a really impressive upgrade, but talk to us about these things going on in the rune soup reality and what's next on the agenda work-wise, maybe even travel-wise. Yeah, sure. So the Foundations is a six-month course in, as it sounds like, the Foundations of Magic as I understand them. And it's this idea that came to me last year in the jungle. And I got back and I asked the members, we can go on with what we usually do, which is every quarter we do a course on tarot or journeying or whatever. They get to vote on it. Or we can do six months, and I don't know what it's going to look like yet because I have to sit and think with how it is I actually do magic so that I can share it. And I'm going to put together a six-month course that's not necessarily beginner, although it is if you are a beginner. It's foundational of how magic works or how I do it. It's a more humble way of saying it. I don't fucking know how magic works. Um, <laughs> and that's worked pretty good. So it, previous courses have been one-hour presentations, six to ten modules. This is a whole bunch of shorter videos that I've done in the Philippines and other places, just because it's the idea was it's following in a weird way, following me around in my normal life while I tell you about magic or show you how it is I do it exactly. So it's been a creative shift. It's working really well. People have resonated with it. And that's the general idea of the foundations. And funnily enough, considering what we spoke about in the members hour or the plus hour, the way I sold it to the members was, what percentage likelihood do you think it is that we will still have the internet at the end of 2023? It's probably 98%, but it's not 100%. Like it, <laughs> it is a non-zero chance that we may not have the internet because of how poorly things are going with World War III and whatever by the end of this year. Consequently, if we were ever going to do a course where I can tell you everything I know about foundations of magic, Now's maybe the time to do it in case we don't get to speak again for 10 years. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but it is a non, it's the first time that we've been doing courses where it's like a non-zero possibility. And that was the final thing that tipped it over. Similarly, what I've got going on bookwise is I'm working on the final book of my DOT trilogy, so Starships and Animistic, and then the next one. And it's built on some of the explorations I was doing last year in Maya country, and again, Ecuador and Peru and, and so on, and Aboriginal Australia. That's why I was in the Philippines, New Zealand, a few other places, including Vanuatu coming up. 
and I'm kind of front loading all of that international travel, and I think I'm cutting it even pretty fine <laughs> with Vanuatu, so that I've got it all, and I can sit here and back in Tasmania and write the book and do it that way because we all need to, I think, adjust our plans according to the scenarios that develop in front of us. But yeah, that's the the main thing is the foundations and working on the final book of the Dot Trilogy, which will be out in the first half of next year. Nice. Wow. Well, yeah, living your life to the fullest as it was designed to be lived. I commend you. Good on you for getting out there in the world and for never really slowing down. But this has been quite enjoyable. I can't think of a better person to close out the San Diego THC studio with than you. It's been great talking to you as always. I really enjoyed doing both lists. The paranormal list was quite fun. I hope people enjoyed uh, a little bit of a change in the way these podcast things are done, but keep fighting the good fight and take care out there, man. Absolutely. And good luck with the move. I'm very excited for the lot of you, for the whole family. Sweet Seeky Horror Sabbatical, Batman. <laughs> Only the Plus members know what Seeky Horror is about, but that's why you don't miss half the show, right, guys? <sighs> Well, consider this one last call for alcohol, so finish your whiskey or beer, because it is closing time at THC Studios San Diego. And this was a great way to go out. It's a bit easier on me in the preparation department when I do have all this crazy stuff going on, packing, moving, and closing on a house, which I must say is a crazy process for anyone who hasn't done it. I can't believe this is the most efficient process we have come up with for simply buying a house, but everybody's got to get their cut of the transaction, you know? Anyway, I'll put both paranormal book lists in the show notes so it's easier to follow up on if you like. Maybe you weren't even aware that we did the top 10 conspiracy books on Gordon's show, so there's more to check out if you fancy. I was also the most recent guest on Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, so there's that as well. But expect a sizable gap before the next show. There's a few loose ends to tie up here in town, friends to say goodbye to, followed by a maybe five-day drive in my estimation because a toddler can only sit in a car seat so long without a break. And the same can be said for my pregnant wife, as well as the two cats that are going to be driving us crazy the whole time. Then when we roll in, it's tons of unpacking, and I have to get the internet set up. And who really knows how long that might take? I tried to call ahead, but because this is a new construction house, the address isn't in their database, and they really gave me no option but to wait until it is. So if I have to go and get a hotel and do shows from there, that would be worst case scenario, but it is possible. I guess I'm saying just be flexible with me. Once I'm set up, it's business as usual, but the process to get there isn't all that easy or clear. At least you won't have to hear about all this move talk anymore. THC is not supposed to be about my personal life, but it has crept in a lot lately, I know. That said, we did get the full top 10 into the first hour and filled the second hour with a lot of good stuff. We got Gordon's insights and stories from his trip to the Isle of Witches slash healers in the Philippines. We talked about why the Philippines and Ecuador are actually already living in the future. 
what the components of Gordon's blended cycles model are and what they're saying about the next few years and which components seem to be the most accurate currently. We got into the implications for Americans when it comes to the international de-dollarization going on around the world, the levels of intervening and where to do it effectively, and Gordon's interest in dirigibles and airships. If you're a regular listener but not a plus listener, throw me a bone, would you? You heard me say my wife's pregnant again, right? Eight bucks a month and you get twice as much content. If you like how and who I interview, it should be a pretty easy decision. But I've made my case plenty of times before. But this makes two for April and hopefully I squeeze in three from the other side. Let's look at the meetup calendar before I get out of here. Looks like April got a couple more from when we last talked about this, but coming up, we have April 8th in Sedona, Arizona at the Sundowner Bar and Grill. April 15th, the Ticknall Walk in Ticknall, Derby, United Kingdom. April 20th, the Conspire Solutions GTA, a meetup in Richmond Hill, Ontario. April 20th, the meetup at Flame International Restaurant in LA. And April 21st, the Sinspiracy Monthly Number 3, Sharonville, Ohio. I love it. If you want to have a fun night out and meet some like minds, it's as easy as making an event at HiresideMeetups.com. It's hard to make new friends in your 30s, so I'm sure I'll do a few of my own. And it's not like I plan on doing a bunch of social media updating throughout the trip, but if you are wondering the status of the next show, or if I hit any other roadblocks, unexpected hurdles, I will throw it out there probably on Twitter or the Telegram, just to let you know if maybe I'm not going to make it to my five-show obligation, though I think I will. Until then, thanks to Gordon for taking the time once again. His courses are seriously awesome if you have any interest in a magical life, runesoup.com. And thanks to you guys for allowing me to have my dream job. I couldn't ask for anything better. Much love, take care of you and yours, and have patience with people who haven't caught up yet. It's tough out there. I've done my part. Your move, paranormal book readers, larger-than-material-world lovers, and sci-phenomena enthusiasts. Your fucking move. When you see weird lights outside of your door Something sits on your chest when you sleep It might be a pattern you've been through before you might have those screen memories darling wait till we get some proof still we'll make them see and baby i tried the camera died i'm not crazy Can't get free from mistakes
gone cause my memories fade But we know that it's not just a dream Cause they never put me back exactly the same way